Blog Talk Radio. This is where the confrontation with Simpson and Goldman started and ended. Do you think he was innocent in fact? He had nothing exculpatory. Everything pointed in one direction with this guy. Nicole Brown Simpson absolutely was a battered woman. OJ, please surrender immediately. OJ! Should the American people be furious at the defense for driving a railroad train through the racial divide in this country, for raising the specter of racist cops, when it was obvious that O.J. Simpson had murdered his wife? Here we are, 20 years later. The, the, the day I die, that will be the lead two sentences of my obituary. The fact that he fell from the top of the world to the most hated person in the world, that's your story right here. And good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us for OJ20, June the 4th, 2014. This is King George you're listening to. We're joined with several guests. Let's bring them in one by one. First of all, out of Phoenix, Arizona, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dwayne Tate, defense attorney. Good evening, Dwayne, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? Good, Jordan. How are you tonight? Oh, very good. I believe we have Mr. Darren Cabanoki, a defense attorney seen on HLN and the ID Network. Darren, good evening. How are you? Hey, how's it going, Jordan? Pleasure. Uh, we have the body language expert out of Florida, Miss Susan Constantine. Good evening, Susan, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? Hey, Jordan. Okay. Well, it's been 20 years of the O.J. Simpson uh, acquittal. And, Darren, I want to go to you first on this. When uh, this trial started back in uh, 95, a long time ago, uh, did the defense win it, or did the prosecution lose it? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. It's so funny uh, to think about about that trial and, and how long ago it was, because I was a brand-new baby lawyer. And I started practicing in 1994, and I remember, I remember where I was on the slow speed chase. I remember where I was, uh, when the, when the acquittal was announced. And it seems like for this generation, it is, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Uh, but but to answer your case, uh, to answer your question, rather, in a word, uh, in my view, this was less about uh, about a defense win and much more about a prosecution loss. And and uh, to put a really really fine point on it, I, I was speaking with somebody in the in the makeup room at the CNN bureau in Los Angeles today, and and I'll. I'll allow that person to remain nameless but she's working on a on a CNN documentary about this very topic and had just interviewed Alan Dershowitz who uh was who was commenting 
quite emphatically that the defense team always felt like this was a lock for them based on all of the prosecution missteps, uh, based on the, the mishandling, that they never felt like they had to mount a defense, that it was always about the prosecutor failing to meet its burden, failing to be effective. And, uh, and I think ultimately that's one of the legacies of this case. Uh, Jordan, can I chime in? Dwayne Case. Dwayne Case, let's hear from you. You know, I somewhat agree, but but I think that part of the brilliance of the defense case was that they forced the prosecution to go to trial very fast. Most of these cases take two or three years to get to trial, and the prosecution has plenty of time to get up to speed. You've got to remember, this is when DNA was first coming out. Nobody would really even heard about it yet. The prosecution didn't have any idea, and, and the defense had Barry Sheck, who was the country, who probably knew more about DNA than any lawyer in the country. And so they shoved them into trial. I mean, they, they enforced the last day, and the prosecution wasn't ready for the onslaught. And the defense had the, had the resources to, uh, to hire a dream team of lawyers in every area and, uh, and, and they just overwhelmed the prosecution. I, I think that is such a great point, Dwayne, that, um, and, and it's funny because I worked on a very high-profile case in L.A. after that. Uh, it was the, the murder of Bill Cosby's son, Ennis Cosby. And uh, I was the first lawyer hired on that case, and we were initially retained to go through preliminary hearing and, and borrowing a page from what had happened uh, just shortly before that, in the Simpson case, they skipped the preliminary hearing. They went straight to the grand jury, filed an indictment. It was a completely different tactical game that the DAs were playing. And all of that was influenced by what happened in O.J. In Simpson. Dwayne, your, your point is, is so right on because the defense never waived time. They insisted on a speedy preliminary hearing, and they scored a lot of points at that preliminary hearing, and they never waived their right to a speedy trial, and this case was on a fast track, and that made it advantage defense right from the gate. Okay, uh, let me hear from Susan, body language expert. Also, we do have uh, legal analyst uh, Richard Herman uh, joining us. Good evening, Richard. How are you? How are you, King Jordan? Okay, you're on the phone with Darren Kavanoke, Dwayne Cates, the body language expert, Susan Constantine. Susan, can you uh, take a take a shot at that uh, question? Okay, well, I'm going to speak not as a body language expert, but I'm going to speak as a jury consultant. Okay, so when I'm looking at this juror profile, you know, if I were hired for this case, this was a dream team of jurors for the defense. When you're looking at the difference between egalitarians and authoritarian jurors, this the demographics of this jury pool was is actually was a dream for those that were working for the defense. That's just the very beginning part of it. I cannot speak on the behalf of the legal aspect of it because that is not my line of expertise. My expertise really ranges right. from looking at the demographic profile of the jurors, seeking out who I think are the most dangerous jurors and then working our best to get them excused off the case or strike them off of our jury pool. And then we've got what we've got left over. And hopefully, 
you know, from the, the state point of view, I mean, you're, you're looking at these demographic profiles. There's, there's like one person that was even slightly authoritarian that was uh, that I would consider anybody that would have had any sort of qualities to be able to lead that group there. I mean, everyone in here, most of them were uh, people that were, or excuse me, people that are low-income earners or factory workers, computer technology people, um, and there was a high level of minorities. There was, I think there was only one white woman that served on that jury pool. And when you listen, you, you read um, about some of their comments that they've made throughout the void year, you, you would be able to determine, you know, which ones would be best for the defense and which are the prosecutions. I don't think that the state really used um, their preemptory strikes very well in dismissing some of these jurors that I felt were very dangerous for their case. Okay, Richard, uh, I asked the question, did the uh, state lose it or did the defense, defense win it? What's your take? This was a state prosecutorial abomination from the get-go. From selecting the jurisdiction to rush and get a grand jury indictment rather than bringing the case in the jurisdiction where the crimes took place, what did they expect? They knew they were going to get a, a dominant minority jury bringing it in downtown L.A., and that's exactly what they got. But moreover, the, the thrust of the defense of the case showed the jury, now this comes on the heels of Rodney King's beating by the police within two years or so, right. showed the jury the blunders of the police, how they set things up, how they moved evidence, how they contaminated evidence. It wasn't a question of Barry Sheck being a brilliant DNA. All he had to say was, it's, they contaminated it. They contaminated O.J.'s blood. They may have spilled blood on the glove. I mean, it was just an abomination from, from every move they made, including having those two inept attorneys act as prosecutors who unbelievably are called on television shows to give, you know, legal analysis these days, which I can't believe. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think Marcia is actually one of the only real winners to come out of this because she got a $6 million book deal on the heels of that hmm. loss. Can you believe that? I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> that that happened to her. A complete and utter abomination as an attorney, completely over her head in this case, had no idea, had no way to handle the defense attorneys. The judge turned off early on in the case, so he was, a non, he was gone. He allowed the defense to run roughshod over them to bring a, uh, a discrimination theory of defense in this thing and to show the jurors that, look, we know how it is, brothers and sisters. You can't trust law enforcement. Look what they did here. Look how we caught them. How can you have any confidence in the prosecution case now? How can they possibly convict our victim, O.J. Simpson? It had to go this way. It had to be an acquittal. A complete and utter devastation by, from the get-go from the prosecution. And you know what was amazing about it? Living in L.A. at the time, this was the first case, at least that I can remember, where you really had lawyer as celebrity and judge as celebrity. And Judge Ito seemed to be really taken with the cameras in the courtroom and the international scrutiny mm -hmm. in the case. I remember running the L.A. Marathon that year. And and Judge Ito standing outside. Hey, Dwayne, you ran that marathon, didn't you, Dwayne? Were you running with marathon. me in '95? Uh, <laughs> and and Judge we Judge Ito. Yeah, Judge Ito was out there like waving and just and just you know being part of the crowd and and he was and he was a, like uh, he was a celebrity and the Rolling Stones were on tour then. 
and you know one of the, one of their several last times their touring tours and uh and Robert <laughs> Shapiro Robert Shapiro was in the crowd now I was in the crowd too but Shapiro had much better seats and they flashed up on the big screen you know at the big screens of concerts sometimes they have these crowd shots and and they had spotted Shapiro in the crowd and all of a sudden his face goes up on the screen and people erupted it was like there was cheering and 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 this was before the verdict was in you know this was people People were very, uh, very taken with him as a celebrity now, and it was the first time I could remember that happening, where 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 lawyers and judges were so much part of the public consciousness. It was an amazing thing to witness. Yeah, I wish I, you know I witnessed something similar happen down here with the, yeah, you know, your with town. the Jody Arias case. <laughs> I mean that, that that was a circus. Yep. That really was. 150 million people watched the verdict in the O.J. Simpson case. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, Dwayne, it's funny uh, that I remember. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go on, Dwayne, uh, I was going to say that everybody, everyone was watching it from all over the world. And, you know, it, it really was one of the, it was almost like a reality TV show. And I want to take you back. I was probably in my mid-20s when we we're watching this trial, and of all things, that specific day, I was getting my hair, drawn, hair done at the hairdressers, and everyone stopped, customers, everyone else, rollers in their hair, foils in their hair, stopped, watched it the entire chase down the road, and, and then, then uh, of course, you know, it was kind of reenacting that, and then there was the verdict. I mean, the whole place, it was like a comedy act. It was amazing. Mm. And it's and interesting that you guys said that, you know, you can think about, you know, different points in times about the, the, our assassination, assassinations or these big high-profile trials, about the, you know, you can remember exactly what day, what time, and one hour it happened, and remember it like as if it happened yesterday. And it, that had the same impact on me as it did others on the O.J. Simpson case. Yep. And it was funny because that was my first time ever being a legal commentator, and I was in law school, and the and reporters came to our law school to ask us what we thought about ah. the O.J. Simpson trial. So that that's was my very the, first time ever being on that's TV. What mo- that's what most of the TV t- stations do now. They get law students to act as sophisticated legal commentators, and most of these students have absolutely no idea what they're talking about, never been in a courtroom, mm-hmm. and, you know, we got to sit and listen to that garbage. But anyway, well, I'm sure you were well, brilliant by, by the tr- law I, I was brilliant. I absolutely I know was. you were. Yeah, by, by the time I, by the time I got to law school, I had been in several courtrooms, but it was always as the defendant. That was my problem. <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, say we can't count my perp walks. Other than <laughs> you, put, you put your lead defe- detective. I was going to say defective. Say, Mark Furman on the stand, and you catch your lead guy basically planting evidence and in just outright blatant lies, and you look to the jury, and, you know, defense guys know this, you look to the jury and say, their, their own lead detective set this case up. He lied. You caught him in a lie. Doesn't that taint everything in the prosecution case? And it just went down the line. This Mark Furman is called by Fox to be an expert on things. Who is, he is an expert on blowing cases and obstructing justice. Why was he not indicted? Why was he not arrested? It's unbelievable to me. Yeah. I would I would agree Dwayne, with that. Your thoughts on Mark Furman, Dwayne? You know, Mark Furman. You know, he, he was just he was a he was a defense dream. You know, I mean, he couldn't keep his story straight. He, you know, he. 
God, you know, it was just yeah. his cross examination was, you know, should be should be shown to law students, you know, when he was cross examined because mm-hmm. he was just disassembled. Darren, yeah. I think that was Furman. Oh yeah, I mean Furman, Furman was massacred, but I, I also I also felt like the defense was so lucky. Like at the time that they asked him the question about ever having used the N word, they didn't have those tapes. And uh, sometimes it just goes to show better lucky than good. Mm-hmm. Well, that was just that that was the, I mean, that's when the entire case swung and it was probably irretrievable at that time based on that evidence. But when you have an inexperienced prosecutor like Darden, who's up there, you know, in an arrogant and just a horrible attitude during the proceeding and you have him go with this glove issue and you tell him mm. to OJ to put the glove on, not knowing anything about this glove, knowing whether it can fit. It was so amateur hour. And boy, you know, they tell you don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. And of course, we always ask questions we don't know the answers to, but we take calculated risks. This this was an absolute abominable blunder that was just devastating to the prosecution case when he wiggled and jiggled and tried to get his hand and it didn't fit. And, and actually mean, got to testify and say in front of the jury it doesn't fit and was never right. cross-examined. Exactly. I mean, that was one of the Look what big they're doing to me. I'm a victim. Look what yeah. they're doing to me. It doesn't fit, yeah. you know. And, and I actually, I actually got to use if the glove doesn't fit, you must quit. Used it. I got Everybody's to use that in front of a jury. It was absolutely wonderful. It's uh, it's so uh, amazing though that that people think that it was Johnny Cochran that came up with that phrase, and apparently, uh, it, it, somebody else on the defense team surfaced that from a poem that had been written. And and it wasn't original thought on Johnny's part, but I think if you asked a hundred people on the street what where that phrase came from, Johnny Cochran would get the credit. And when we talk about the winners and losers from the O.J. Simpson case, Johnny Cochran, one of the big winners. I think we could probably all agree on that. Absolutely, Johnny yeah, Cochran was was awesome in that trial. I mean, he really was, and uh, you know, he he was masterful. He, he was made it masterful. and so, yeah. He he made yeah. it to OJ. Yeah, he made it to OJ being the victim, and he brought race into it, and he plastered it in the jury's minds at the end, and you, and send mm-hmm. a message, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, send a message to the Los Angeles Police Department that you will not tolerate this type of, of of horrendous police work. That was his summation, and it was devastating. Well, and Susan's point I think is so important because, as you know, as as lawyers or people practicing in court that you can have the best case in the world, but if you don't have an audience that's receptive to hearing it, you're screwed mm-hmm. from the gate. And what they right. did so masterfully, or what the prosecution did so poorly, uh, in even their, their choice of venue, was, was that there were a bunch of people, 12 of them to be precise, who were completely open to what Johnny Cochran was saying that day. Right. Well, let's, you know, that's a very good point, because, you know, I, I train attorneys all over the country. I've, certified courses that are state bar certified in 35 states in deception and detecting deception and communication. And the one thing that I teach attorneys and, you know, you guys probably have already mastered this, but you know, one thing that I really admired a lot about this particular case is that the, with Cochran is that he had this really strong visual appearance. Um, he was a charismatic leader he was a phenomenal speaker and presenter, and he utilized the four secrets to communication, which means connecting people visually, auditorily, 
kinesthetically and also using factors is called auditory digitally. And using those components, and, I, and one of the things I like to make a point to is that, you know, 61% of our general population, which are jurors, are visual. And everything that he expressed, he, he walked them through down memory lane as if they were there, as if it was in living color. He uses, used the correct tonality. He knew when to pause and to hesitate and create silence when he needed to really anchor a message. The, his presentation from a public speaker's point of view, he was exceptional. Mm. And I think that that in itself, the way he was able to connect with that jury Already, they're already a defense-minded jury, okay? They're already predisposed to being more defense than they were prosecution. The charisma that he possessed just captivated people. I mean, it was just one of those things you just want to listen to him because it was like listening to Martin Luther King or something speak because he was able to really rivet right through the soul of people just through his voice inflection, his tonality, his, uh, and, and connecting with people and, visually. And, and, and authenticity. And powerful. Authenticity. You're right. He was very authentic. You could tell that he was, it was coming from that authentic passion that he had within himself. He believed in what he was saying, and that really projected when he was speaking. Richard, what about uh, uh, Judge Ito? What's your thoughts on him? Pathetic. One word, pathetic. I mean, I don't know how he got to be a judge. I don't know why he got to be a judge. I don't know what his qualifications were. He certainly, I don't know that he's even a lawyer. I'd like to see his law degree. I mean, he was just horrible. And he allowed the attorneys to run all over him, no control of the courtroom, him and his stupid hourglasses up there. I mean, it was ridiculous. But back to Johnny Cochran, there's very few defense attorneys that have that, the skill that he has. He was mesmerizing. It was like a Sunday sermon, and the jury mm-hmm. bought into every word out of his mouth and he's very charismatic mm-hmm. and a bright guy and you're right he and i've read your book susan and he, he did everything you want an Thanks. attorney to do and they just mm-hmm. fell in love with him and if he would they have did. said anything that day the jury would have bought it they just loved mm-hmm. him they believed he was mm-hmm. authentic and they believed his story that the police went after to frame their brother oj and i think there mm-hmm. were eight or nine blacks on that jury there's no way there was mm. going to be a conviction in this case no. and you know talking about ito i think ito was a little overwhelmed absolutely not by just not by just the cameras but i think that just the magnitude of the lawyers on the defense side I mean, I think he was in awe of the defense team. I mean, I think he was just he just sat there in awe about what was going on and I think he just he let I mean he he just he he let the defense team just run roughshod over his courtroom. I mean they basically mm-hmm. got to do anything they wanted to do, they got to do. And uh, you know, and it was just it was it was pretty clear. Mhm. I mean yeah. F. Lee Bailey yeah. F. Lee Bailey, the judge probably had posters of him in his room. I mean, this was yeah. considered at one time the greatest we all? defense attorney. Yeah. yeah, one of the greatest in the world. And there he was hammering Furman, dissecting him, demolishing him mm-hmm. in front of this jury. I mean, he was, it was just masterful. Yeah. I don't think what that he him? realized. What was that? I was going to say we're talking about Furman. Yes. Good. So go ahead. Finish your point. Okay, what I was going to share with you is regarding Furman. I think that, you know, his arrogance and his narcissism was just, it reeked the courtroom. Yes. And first of all, you've got people in L.A., number one, that they want to trust cops, but as much as they want to trust cops, they don't trust cops at the same time. So when he was 
caught actually be almost impeached on the witness stand that his arrogance, his lack of emotion and empathy and compassion, none of that was there. He was just, he came across as being so deceptive. I mean, when you're talking about things that don't match, you know, I mean, what he was saying wasn't matching with the words. I mean, the, the, the scene wasn't matching with what he, he was constantly contradicting himself. And regardless of these people that were on the jury, they weren't the highly, most highly educated people, but they could, I'll tell you what they are, they're street smart. And, you know, and they listened to him, they knew he was full of crap. And I said that he lost his credibility and no one trusted him. And I think he broke that into the house. Huge... He broke. He broke into the house without a warrant. He planted evidence. I know it. I mean, he's, it was a huge mistake. I would. Ne- I, you know, I don't know why the state would have called him as a witness. I really don't know. You know, I guess the defense would have called him as a witness anyway. They probably had to. But I mean, I think that he destroyed the case. It was almost kind of like when you look at the Trayvon Martin case. Remember Gentile and how she? I mean, yep. when she testified how horrible she was. God bless her soul. Uh, but we're looking at the same train wreck when we're looking at Furman. I think I think that he did a huge disservice toward the state. You know, one he thing I don't know if anybody thought. I, I don't know if anybody thought about this, but you know, it would have been a whole different case if that case were today with the new technologies that we have, mm-hmm. that with touch DNA and with all the new, all the new CSI gadgets that they have, and all the crime mm-hmm. scene investigation techniques that they have nowadays. It would be a totally different case. Horatio King would have got a conviction, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Aaron, I want to thank you. I know you have to run. You, yeah, and, uh, I've got an office full of people, but so great to talk to you guys. It feels like an HLN homecoming when I get uh, <laughs> when I get to yeah. hang out with this crew. And yeah. uh, thanks for having me, King. I hope uh, we'll be back in touch soon. Absolutely. Have a good one, Darren. Thanks. All right. Take yeah. care, gang. Bye-bye. See you, Darren. Bye-bye. All right, another interesting character in the case was Tobin Cato. Richard, let's start with you. <laughs> well, he was a joke. I mean, the guy was just, I mean, he, like a train wreck. You, you drive down the highway and you see a, a car crash and everybody has to slow down and look at it. And this Cato Kalin was just a car wreck. And, I mean, I just mm-hmm. I remember watching him and listening to him and just his mannerisms and, I, sometimes I couldn't even understand mm-hmm. the substance of what he was saying, but I just I couldn't take my eyes off this guy. He just it just kept coming every time they put him up there, and uh, yeah. you know he, he he was a big player in the case there. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they say he was until Marsha Clark went through that transformation and changed her hair, and then all of a sudden people were talking about her looks and not Kato <laughs> Kalen anymore. But uh, it was unbelievable. Kato Kalen is probably the first person ever to be really, really, really famous for just being a freeloader. You know, because <laughs> he was just living there for free, really wasn't doing nothing, and nobody can really explain why he was there or what he was doing there, or you know, what kind of it was even you know, nothing. And he just like he just like shows up and he's like, "Hey, dudes, what's up, man?" He's like Spicoli. <laughs> <laughs> with the pizza. Yeah, Susan, with the order the pizza in class. It's Susan, so funny. I actually, you know, I have to share something with you, is that Cato Kalin's, the, his testimony, I use in every single one of my training classes. And what I do is, is there's, a, there's a, a part in his testimony talking about this book, you know, this book deal that he was supposedly supposed to get. And, I mean, just watching his demeanor 
And what I do is I kind of run it in, in, in real time. And he had the strongest sense of disgust and disdain for Marsha Clark. And you could see this in these little micro-expressions of disgust where the nose kind of crinkles up and then he gets angry and you could see him getting frustrated with, with, uh, with Marsha Clark. But then what I do is when I show it in, in slow time or fast time, then I show the, the video in slow time showing individuals that are taking my class of, of how you tie content, of what he's saying, what he's hearing with the expression that happens simultaneously. And when people see it in slow motion, they are shocked to seeing this, this strong disdain and disgust for Marsha Clark. But in every training class, that I and people are just laughing. They laugh their butts off because they can't believe, oh, my God, this guy is incredible. But you're right, shoulder shrugging, deception, you know, he's pausing, and then he says, no, I, I'm not planning on writing a book, and his voice lowers, and it's like it's a secret. <laughs> we know it's a secret because we already know there's a book deal. We already know. I mean, he was not even a good liar. He just was horrible. And, uh, you know, it was comical. Uh, in fact, you know, everybody, as I shared with you, everybody always laughs when I show that video. Slow time and then fast time. It's, it's a classic for deception detection experts. Uh, Richard, Alan Dershowitz, what should take on him? Well, Alan is, uh, you know, one of the greatest attorneys. I'm not even going to say defense attorneys. One of the greatest attorneys in our country. I mean, he's brilliant. His grasp of uh, legal issues and the law is second to none. And uh, when Alan speaks, you have to stop and listen to what he has to say because more times than not, you know, he's right on the button there. He's got uh, tremendous analysis. And, and uh, you know, you, you talk about a dream team. Look at the attorneys that they had on the defense here. You know, how could Marshall Clark and Darden ever, and, and Garcetti, how could they ever stand a chance again? I don't even care what the fact pattern was with that group of people, with Barry Sheck in the mix, too. I mean, it was so stacked and loaded with just supreme, superior legal talent on the other side that, uh, you know, I, I, I'd venture to say that you know, any case that came before them, they probably could have won uh, against the two prosecutors because they were just so inept. Marsha Clark was horrendous. I mean, she was horrible in her questioning and her demeanor and her, and, and, and her strategy. And Darden was just like a kid out of law school. I mean, I don't even know. Really, how, was, how did he get the second seat in the biggest murder trial in, in, you know, maybe in the, in the country, in the history of L.A.? Certainly, what is he doing there? You know, it's just, and, and they got it handed to them. They really did. They, uh, they got what they deserved by putting on a case like that. And believe me, everybody felt O.J. was guilty. There was the, the evidence seemed to be overwhelming against his guilt. And, you know, he took the civil case with a different burden of proof in Florida, and, of course, they crushed him. And then the big payback was in Las Vegas. And, you know, Vegas is just on a case that he should have won. He should have won the case in Las Vegas, and yet uh, he didn't. He's, they're never going to give him any leniency out here. Mm -hmm. He filed another appeal today in honor of your show, King. He put another appeal in on his case in Vegas, but uh, they're not going to let him go, and he's got no chance on appeal. And, uh, and uh, it's just, you know, he should have been convicted in California, and uh, I think Vegas has taken their vengeance out on him now. Yeah, I have people all the time, uh, my clients all the time go, 
go, hey, you know, uh, you know, O.J. Simpson got off, and I said, well, okay, give me twenty-eight million dollars, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go put together a dream team. You know, Alan Dershowitz can write motions and argue motions for me any day of the week. Absolutely. You know, and I'll have Barry Sheck run the run the run the DNA guy. I'll have Johnny Cochran open and close for me. You know, I mean, come on, I won't do anything. Mm-hmm. I'll just sit in the tra- I'll just be like a conductor because because <laughs> they got the best lawyer in every area. In every field that they, you know, they got F. Lee Bailey to do the cross examination. Come on, I mean, mm-hmm. you just, it just doesn't get better than what they did. And, they would have uh, put you in there, Dwayne. You would have been part of the team too. I don't know. I, 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 I would have been, I would have been happy to watch. <laughs> I'd have been happy just to be sitting at the table. <laughs> and Dershowitz said that the uh, glove thing uh, didn't have to be in the presence of the jury. Uh, that could have been tried outside the presence of the jury. He told Geraldo. So uh, that wasn't a good well, idea. Well, number one, number one, the prosecution should have made him try to put the glove on long before trial. I mean, that that should have been right. something that was that was done way before they even before they even impaneled the jury. They should have they she should have tried the glove on with a video camera to Absolutely. see if it fit him. <laughs> Absolutely. But they planted the glove. They planted the glove, so now they got payback for planting the glove. I mean, and tainting it with his oh. blood. The, the, they, they, the CSI in LA said we we dropped the vial. Some of his blood spilled, and the glove was on the desk when it spilled. I mean, that's what happened here. You can't well, you know, the, the lesson is if the lesson is if you're gonna plant a glove, buy one that's the right size. Or a little big, or a little big, <laughs> a little big, because it might it might dry up and shrink up a little bit. You're absolutely right. Just make sure the glove fits. But Susan, what do you do when you have a jury pool so stacked pro defense that you know what are you going to do? I mean, uh, you're stuck with it. You can try to weed out the jurors, and I well, have this dilemma all the time. And believe me, I'm a believer in all my trials. Mm-hmm. I bring in jury consultants, and I'm going to have to bring you in next time. But I believe in that. I really do. Mm-hmm. But what, sometimes yeah. you get a jury pool, and you're stuck. I mean, you're really jammed you, up. You are stuck. And and I've had that happen to me. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've done several jury trials, and, you know, so, and I walk in there, and, you know, it, it's interesting because it's just a crapshoot. You guys know this. You know, it just depends on who shows up that day. And, and, and it's really, it's like throwing dice because you never know who's going to show up, and it may be the – in the first 30 or 40 that show up, they're strong authoritarians or egalitarians. And, you know, there's, it's like playing a game of chess to try to get the ones off that you want and keep the ones that you keep. It's really a strategic game. But what do you do? Here's what you do. Is it really is all about, and you guys know this, is about building rapport. It's about building rapport with that jury. The second thing is in being able to dummy down when you're speaking to them so that you can connect with people. The way I liken this, too, is like it's like the president of the United States, of any president. They have to be able to speak in a way that connects with every kind of learning and communication style. And when you get to that point, you become more of a master communicator, and you hope that the other side is going to be worse. And so your only advantage that you have is you and how you connect with that jury and how you deliver that information to connect with them so that they will be convinced and what you're telling them is the truth on either side. And so it really 
depends on your skillfulness and your persuasion techniques, your, pers- your persuasion, your communication skills, your speaking skills to connect with that jury. That's going to be your strength. Yeah, Maricopa County has got notoriously conservative jurors. I mean, we have tough mm-hmm. juries in Maricopa County. They're all, you know, they're all from the, you know, from the Midwest. They're all retired. They're all, mm-hmm. you know, they're all. I mean, it's it's Guilty brutal here. Guilty proven innocent. Guilty till proven innocent. I just I just there. tried a case on it was that was on Dateline NBC in, in in January. It was the best case that I've ever had. Second degree murder case. I tried the best case that I ever had. I, I mean, it was mm-hmm. my best effort. My client was a lawyer, and all his friends were lawyers, and all and his friends watched the trial, and they were mm-hmm. good trial lawyers that watched the trial. And they all were like, "Oh my God, that was awesome!" And and we and I I felt like I won every witness, I won everything, and the mm-hmm. jury came back guilty. And uh, mm. thank, and it was so bad that the judge threw the verdict out based on weight wow. of the evidence, which never happened. Wow. The judge said, well, you know, I, "I just can't. I can't let this stand. <laughs> this was just, you know." And the judge went did a thirty-one page, you know, ruling that said, lucky. "Hey, oh, it never happens. It, it, that never yeah. happens." Yeah. And you know, you're you a good judge. Jordan. When you I'm look sorry, at the Jordan. jury pool, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Go on. No, uh, I'm, I'm going to change. Oh, you know, good. Change the subject here. But anyway, you know, when we're looking at the dynamics of the jury, it's not looking at them as individuals. It's looking at them as a group as a, the group dynamics behind closed doors, right? So in that case, you know, in that case where you lost the case when you think everything was going right, you, don't, you guys know that it just takes one or two to change the majority effect. So, you know, there's probably nothing you could have done because someone in there was a stronger leader and everyone was convinced by them that person was easy and was, was able to sway other people over. And that's you know, exactly what that happened. This is Zimmerman trial was the same thing. Remember? I mean, we were all there. We were. I mean, I hear, I'm here in Orlando, Florida. I thought for sure that we would have gotten uh, at least something. You know, he would have been convicted of something because you know the jury kept going back and forth, back and forth. I said, you know what? These guys are wavering. You're wavering, and somebody's a holdout. And all it takes is one or two holdouts. One to convince the other just enough to sway them over. So when you're looking at a jury, think about who's going to be not so much the strongest one, the most influential. And who are the swagers that want easily manipulated? The Zimmerman case had to go that way because there was no evidence to support any other verdict other than what the jury came in with. And in that case also, the prosecution was horrible. But but one one other thing here, uh, King, and by the way, I just saw Zimmer... Uh, just died. The former coach of the Yankees and uh, the Red Sox just passed away. But um, that's sad. Oh wow! But but uh, yeah. Let me just say that it took them yeah six months to put on the prosecution case against OJ, and they didn't need six months. And that's another reason they lost the case. They should have streamlined it and 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 gone after it. But to bring on Mm -hmm. this case for six months, so much bad can happen. During those six months, and you know, Jordan. You know, Jordan. Jordan, yeah. we really don't need you. You can go now. We'll take care of this. Okay. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm having a great time listening. <laughs> you know, jurors get, get numb after a while. You know, it's like if they look at a graphic photo, if they're looking at it over and over and over again, at some point in time, exactly. it just becomes exactly. nothing. And they're only going to retain maybe 25% at best information. 
So, you know, six months, these guys checked out probably a long time ago. At that point in time, they had already, when you're looking at someone, like in the Keith Anthony trial, when you have uh, jurors that are looking at that defendant day in and day out, there tends to be that connectiveness. You know, and the longer it goes, it it's like it. To me, it's most dangerous for well, that didn't, that didn't help Casey. That connectiveness did not no, I help did, her. Well, it did help her. It did help her there, but there was that connectiveness. Oh no, I'm what I'm saying is that when the O.J. Simpson case, they connected with him, looking at him yeah. every single day, connecting but with him. Plus, O.J. was a star too. That's you know, the thing. So. Yeah, there you go, Dwayne. Sure. He was a superstar in the right. African American community, sort of like Pistorius is in South Africa. I mean, he is also elevated, like to the level of O.J. as being a cult figure, almost a hero. And that's what O.J. was, especially to the black community. So when they were able to show how the police work was shoddy and that evidence was planted that fed right in and they got to sit and they got to sit 15 feet away from their hero yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely 20 feet away from their hero absolutely for for six months you know and that Mm -hmm. and 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 then you add that connection i mean it was a it was a cocktail for a loss for the prosecution kind of right from the beginning Mm mm-hmm yeah Uh, i agree second case 2207 what would a normal person have got in uh, that case in Las Vegas we were just talking about? What would with, be with a, o- a normal? With, with OJ? OJ? Yeah. Oh, 933 he got. Yeah, probably a year or two. And, and, and I've talked to defense attorneys out here who have said that. I mean, they really just lo- – look, I tried a case back there, Susan, in Orlando, a uh, yeah. 11-month federal uh, RICO case, insurance fraud case, mm-hmm. where they stacked on a federal defendant, thank God, not my client, and he ended up getting 845 years because no. the judge oh stacked God. it on him. So mm-hmm. uh, here, you know, in, in Vegas, a normal defendant would have come through in a case like this, maybe a year or two, max three. Yeah, there you know, would have been a plea bargain. You know, you'd have yeah, pre-bargained it out. You'd have got him a couple years. Absolutely. You know, mm. you know, time, you know, year, year with time for, you know, time served and good, and good this behavior. Judge and, hated him. Judge Glass hated him in Vegas. Mm. I mean, everybody hated him here, and this was the big payback. I mean, mm. no matter what happened, they were going to get him. Wow! Yeah, and they'll Will never get convince the court of appeal to that. No. So what about twenty seventeen? He's up for parole in twenty seventeen. Do so you think he'll get out? No. Hey. Anybody. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. He's staying for a little longer. I think. <laughs> He's going to stay in Vegas because something happened in Vegas, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, Richard, what's, uh, what's some of the evidence in the 94-95 case that if you were the prosecution, you would have focused more on than Marsha Clark and Darden didn't do? In the first thing, I, you know, it, there's just so much, and, and uh, you know, you really would have had to work with law enforcement to get the story straight so you weren't caught with your pants down as many times as they were. And, and you dealt a hand of horrible police work there, so you've got to deal with mm-hmm. that. But uh, I certainly would have put into evidence the chase, the Bronco chase, because that's evidence of flight, that's evidence of guilt. They never put that before the jury. And there we were, mesmerized, right, watching right. This, this TV with this guy driving around like a mental case. And when he pulls into Rockingham, there's 27 SWAT people there with guns drawn on them. And why was that evidence not put in before this jury? I don't know. 
But other than, you know, there were just so many problems with the prosecution, and I would have tried to get the judge on my side, and I would have tried to make legal arguments, and I would have made motions during the trial to try to get the judge focused, and uh, I, I just tried to, would have done anything I could to keep things focused, because it got out of focus. And the issue mm-hmm. became a white-black thing, a racial issue in this trial, which was not the issue in the case. And it just got mm-hmm. – everything got taken away from the mainstream. And I would have done everything I could in my power to try to keep the jury focused on the issues. Mm-hmm. Dwayne, what about – how would you have done Absolutely. this Absolutely. I mean, again, it's like I said before, they got, I, you know, they, they got overwhelmed by the, uh, by, the, by the defense. You know, the defense forced them – into, you know, trying this within the speedy trial rules with no continuances, just bam, 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 bam. And, and you know, and the, the prosecution was so far, far behind by the time they realized that they were behind that they, that they had no way to come back. They needed, a, they needed to throw a bunch more resources at this. I don't know if they had a room full of lawyers, you know, doing research, writing motions or something, but they should have just, I mean, they needed help. I mean, they really did. And uh, and you know and I don't know if they're good attorneys or bad attorneys. They did a they didn't do a very good job in the courtroom. But I think they were just absolutely overwhelmed. And it's one of those deals. Sometimes you know you, you, they were so far behind that they may not even have known they were behind. Yes, and uh, of course Mark Furman did, did he not realize Richard that he said the word nigger uh, and uh, you know ten years before did he just forget that? I mean. You know, you know, Tom Wolf wrote Vanity of the Bonfire of the Vanities. You know, these people, they just get a perception of themselves that they're their masters of the universe. They could do anything they want and just disregarded any history he had. I mean, he, he broke into the house. He planted evidence. He was a horrible witness. They, 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 yeah, they made a mistake by putting him on the stand. I don't think the defense, I think the defense might have been able to bring him up. Maybe not, but that would have been a fight for the court there. They could have claimed inevitable discovery without putting Furman on the stand, but in any event, he was horrible, and he was the lead, the lead uh, investigator, lead detective for this prosecution case, and when he goes bad, you know, Jordan, how does the whole case not go bad? And he was bad. He was a horrible witness, and not only that, he obstructed justice, and believe me, if, if, if Dwayne, if your clients or my clients obstructed justice, they get another count tacked on, they're looking at five more years in prison. I mean, it's taken very seriously if a defense or someone on the defense side does this, but when the yeah. government witness does it or the gov- a prosecutor or an FBI agent does it, you know, it's a slap on the wrist or it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. nothing. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, you all know, the time. Prosecutors. I mean, you know, I've caught them in just bald faced lies in court to the judge, and and put it in motions, and the judge goes, "Well, you know, it, it wasn't prejudicial." I go, "I don't yeah. give a shit if it was prejudicial. He lied. You can't right. do that." Right. You know, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what the effect was. Okay. The the problem mm-hmm. is is that the man stood in your courtroom and lied to you, and the judge goes, "Ah, eh, no uh-huh. big deal." But you let your you let your client do that, and oh boy. Mm-hmm. Susan, uh, what what do you get out of O.J. Simpson when you see him talk or those interviews that he posted uh, from your body language expertise? Well, you know when they when people ask me to analyze something, it's usually a specific moment in time. You know, I tie everything into what's being spoken at that time, what he's saying, and tying it in with his facial expressions. So. Uh, you know, for me to give you kind of a generality, 
there's just he had floods of emotion during different moments but you know one thing that i remember so distinctly and, and i think it was in one of his depositions and he was he was given a photograph of his bruno magli shoes remember that yeah. and yep. um mm-hmm. so he had the i bought a pair photo. of those I, I bought a pair of those i told everybody i had i had killer shoes <laughs> oh <laughs> that's great <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> a little Midwest humor, huh? Yeah. No, you're smart. You're funny, too. But, you know, he's looking at this picture, and, you know, he's trying to, trying to he's trying to conceal what he's really feeling, right? So, But he is, all of a sudden, this anger just kind of stems up, and you can see it because his mouth gets really tight, his lips pull in, his mouth goes horizontal, and his, the fear in his eyes, you could literally see the whites around the entire circle of his eyes when he's looking at those uh, shoes because they didn't expect, uh, he did not expect that they would have tied those shoes with him, that those were his Bruno Magli shoes, and those shoes were, I guess, the prints that were found or what, I don't right. really know, but I know there was a connection with it. But anyway, in that demeanor there, he tries, to, he conceals a lot of his emotions, and, but it, it's like a teapot. You know, you can only conceal them for so much, it's going to leak out somewhere. And it was leaking out, and the anger in his mouth, and it was leaking out, and the fear in his eyes. And when he was looking at that, those, that photograph, he, if, if he did, wasn't concerned about why would he show fear and anger? You know, those, these are things that we're looking for, you know, when looking for inconsistencies. The, the proper See, uh, expression would, had, be a, uh, would be a neutral expression. Not one of fear and anger. Let me, let me introduce a uh, former LAPD uh, sergeant, uh, Mr. Kerry Anderson, joins the program. Good evening, Kerry, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? Hi, how are you? I, I apologize. I tried to call earlier, but I couldn't get through, um, and I haven't been privy to the actual interview. I had an emergency come up, but I'm here now. Okay, yes, we, uh, we, you've spoken mostly about O.J., and uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I, I worked with the uh, Los Angeles Police Department for uh, right at 20 years, and uh, I had some pretty coveted assignments in, within those 20 years. Um, I worked during the uh, actual time when the O.J. Simpson uh, incident, Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman incident went down, and I was uh, assigned to Chief Williams' uh, security detail at the time. So I was privy to a little bit more information than the uh, regular officers uh, would be privy to. And um, right. that, that, that's just about it. Uh, I, like I said, I don't know where you guys are in the conversations because I just got in dealing with this uh, unforeseen occurrence. But anyway, if you have any questions, I'll, I'll feel free to, you know, uh, but you know what, what I know. You have some, some insight. Uh, what's your take on the whole O.J. Simpson case, the verdict, everything? Well, it, it was kind of uh, very tragic for the families, obviously, that were involved. Uh, I think there was, um, uh, my, my personal opinion, uh, as it relates to O.J. Simpson uh, being at the crime scene, I, I felt that he was there based on the evidence that we collected. However, uh, I firmly believe that um, some of the evidence uh, in the crime scene was definitely compromised by some of the individuals that were involved. And uh, therefore, um, it, 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 it just didn't make the crime scene as well as it could be. We're taught to collect the evidence, preserve it, 
and do it without any kind of you know, uh, prejudice or anything like that. You just collect it and preserve it as you've been trained and taught, and evidence will speak for itself. However, when you do anything contrary to that, then there's an issue uh, that could come up later. And obviously the jury was privy to certain things, and it, it definitely created some reasonable doubt. And therefore, that's why I think we got the, uh, the verdict that was uh, rendered. Hmm. Richard? Well, we talked about that before, and uh, this was about the worst police work you could probably anticipate or, or observe in any criminal proceeding to see what happened in L.A. in this case. They were, just, they were, they were like morons running around there who had no knowledge and no skill how to preserve evidence. I mean, they put, a, they put a blanket over Nicole immediately when they got there so that people couldn't look at her. But they, they corrupted her body. They corrupted the crime scene. They spilled blood evidence in the laboratory. They did not properly seal evidence. They did not take evidence properly. They didn't take it expeditiously. They didn't take it the day they went there. They, some instances, they waited a week to take down uh, blood evidence and other types of evidence. I mean, this was perfect for a Barry Sheck to get up there and expose how, you know, how inept the, the, the law enforcement was in obtaining any sort of forensic evidence in the case and couple that with the mastery of Cochran and the lunacy of Mark Furman on the stand and then couple that with the ineptness of a Marsha Clark and the abominable lawyering of Chris Darden and a jury of, um, you know, basically worshippers of O.J. Simpson who were mesmerized by Johnny Cochran and a judge who was asleep the whole trial. <laughs> this is the result you get. <laughs> That's a nice summary, Richard. <laughs> uh, that was go. really good. Yeah, it was. Well, I, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't agree with some of those <laughs> character traits that you talked about. I, I, some well, of them are. Don't you I, agree I, with? Because I'm prepared to defend every single one of them. So you tell me what you don't agree with. Well, I don't. I don't think Marsha Clark was inept. I don't think Chris Darden was inept. I think okay. they did make some. I, hold on. I think they did make some mistakes. However, uh, the other things that you did OJ, mention... OJ, put the glove on, OJ. Try to glove on in front of the jury, OJ. Okay, that was a mistake. I, I, yeah, that no, was that a mistake. Was the case. That was the case. No, no, that wasn't that the case. That was the case. Yes, no, was. that was not the case. That, that was not the entire that. case. I, I think no, you are... Mark Furman. Mark Furman was the case. Him and the glove, that was the case. No well, chance. Those were, very, those were very crucial, you know, pieces of the case. But I still don't think that you paint a broad brush of ineptness on Marsha Clark's uh, Absolutely. Place. Horrible attorney. No. Inept. No. Not qualified no, to try that case. Not qualified to try that case. Really? Well, that's no, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I'm sure that once the, uh, the district attorney, who was in charge at the time, he put Another his fool. best team he put his best team he put his best team forward because he knew that O.J. was going to have his best team. And I don't know. I, I just – and then, um, you know, you talk about you, – you also main, mentioned about the uh, jury being in awe of O.J. Simpson, which they may have been, but the bottom line is what people don't understand, and they, they criticize the jury as being dumb and ignorant. You know what? A blind person could have been, have been seated on that jury and – 
that evidence been pre presented as it was presented, they would have come up with the same thing. I don't care if the jury was all white, all blue. It, it, isn't, it doesn't matter what the ethnic background of that jury was. Now, mm. did it play a part? Absolutely it did. But, you think O.J. didn't do it? You think he was innocent? You think he didn't do it? No, I don't think that. And I'll tell you what, I know a lot more than you know. I don't think, think he, he did it. I, absolutely I do. I think he was there. You're absolutely right. Why was he taking that joyride in the Bronco? What was that all about? Why are you questioning me? I mean, what, 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 what are you getting at? Uh, what, what, you asked me, did I think he did it? And I think he was there. I don't know if he did it. I think he was at that crime scene. I honestly believe that. I also think that that blood, his blood there that was collected was not planted there. I don't believe that based on what I know. And I guarantee you I know a lot more than you know. Okay. Well, what do you know? Because I think it's planted. I think a lot of the whole prosecution case was planted. I think well, Mark Furman I, I, planted about eighty percent of the whole case. Well, why was Mark Furman think so. arrested? I, I why wasn't he? Why wasn't he arrested for obstruction of justice? Tell me why. I think he. I think he should have been. I know Mark oh, Furman personally. I can't stand him. Couldn't stand him. Why didn't you arrest him then? Huh? Come on. I, why didn't I arrest him? It wasn't my duty to arrest him. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. The L.A. County sheriffs were in charge of that at the time. I, it's not my duty as a police officer sitting in Parker Center on the sixth floor to arrest Mark Furman when he perjured himself on the stand. Right. That's just like saying, why didn't you arrest him? <laughs> if I was, I'm from New York. If I was out there, I would have. Oh, yeah. Arrest. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, like I said, I, I, uh, I have my opinions about it. Uh, I, I'm not basing mine on conjecture and rumor. I know a lot more information than a lot of other people know. And uh, I just think with, with all the factors that were involved uh, and what was presented to that jury, it, it was, they had, to, decide, they had to, to come back with that verdict if they had followed the law. And I don't think Judge Lance Edo was an idiot. I, I don't think that. I don't, you, you, you know, I, there's all kind of variables that, that um, caused this verdict to go down like it did, you know. And um, I think a lot of them had culpability. I don't think there was one set thing. A lot of people say, oh, it was a glove. It was March Clark. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. You take the glove out of the whole thing. What about the socks placed at the bed, okay, that, that had... Planted evidence. You're, you're absolutely Planted. right, 100%. That's the only thing that I really agree with you on. That, now, the thing is, is about if you planted, if, if that evidence was compromised, you can throw all of the evidence out. Why do you got to plant evidence? How bad is your case that you got to plant evidence? Tell me. I don't know. I, I don't. I've never planted evidence in my life. I worked those streets for over twenty years, and I, I don't have that kind of issue. But unfortunately, you do have that. You had that issue then, and you got it now to this day. I, I don't yeah, know. I, I don't have, have all the answers. I have that issue in state cases. I have it in federal cases. People can't believe the FBI would do that. I've seen it, and yet they, it goes untouched, and none of them get prosecuted, and none of them get called out for obstruction. And if a defense person does that, believe me, they're charged, and they're superseders, and they're facing that. But if a, if a government witness does that or a prosecution witness does that, that's nah, okay. No problem. Well, no, I don't that's, But that, that's what our job is, though. Our job is to find right. to ferret that out. And, 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 you know, people ask me about being a criminal defense attorney. I tell them my job is to watch the cops. My job is to make sure that the cops don't run amok. My job is to make sure they don't kick your door down in the middle of the night and just come take you because they think you're guilty of something. 
you know, that's what I do. You know, that's what we do as criminal defense attorneys. You know, we, you know, we watch the police. And, and, you know, I know some really good cops and I know some really bad cops. And I tell them when I interview them, I said, listen, you know, if you do your job right and you do everything correctly, you know, you got nothing to fear from me. I go, but if you're, you know, but if, but if you're cutting corners and cheating and, and planting evidence, then you got plenty to fear from me and I'm going to find out about it. But well, that's, that's what we do. That's, 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 yeah. that's our job. And thank God for you. I, I you know, I, I can't stand bad cops, and, and I think uh, they should be held to a higher standard. You know, they've been entrusted with the ability to take somebody's freedom away, and they, they should be held to a higher standard. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate. We live in an imperfect world, um, and they, like I said, they obviously had it then, and they still have it to this day. All you got to do is look at the news, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just thank God that the juries now nowadays are starting to realize, you know, more and more that this stuff happens. Because it used to be juries, and and I don't know if you agree with me, Richard, but it used to be juries kind of just automatically believed cops. But oh my it God. doesn't happen. But not but not anymore. Yeah, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. You know, when I testified in 1982 and 83, it was a wrap. When we took the stand and you are basically guilty because everybody took our word for it. That is not mm-hmm. the case now. That is totally not mm-hmm. the case. And um, I'm speaking as a cop, well, former cop, you know. So it, it's unfortunate what, what has happened, but it's, it, that's what happens when you, uh, you know, uh, just do bad things. And it shouldn't have happened. I, I believe that had that evidence been, cor- been correctly uh obtained and, uh, you know, not been compromised and people not put their personal prejudices and, and what all, everything in it, that guy would have been convicted, hands down. I don't care if the jury was all black. It, it didn't matter. If they followed the jury instructions, if that evidence had been, like I said, presented right and it had been collected that's a big, and preserved. That's a big IF, capital I and F, if, if. Yeah, if. I, I, and you're right, sir. I, I don't disagree with you there. I, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to blame fault or anything. I'm just saying I, I don't believe you, though, that Judge Lance, you know, it was all his fault. It was all Marshall. It was all his fault. I say he contributed to it because he was horrendous. Well, I understand. Let me, I, let me just say. I think everybody say, has George, some culpability. Let me just thank you for your service. For, for your service and, and, and your dedication to law enforcement. That's appreciated. And Susan, your books are phenomenal. I have them, and i love to talk with you one of these days. And Dwayne, you've been doing a wonderful job on TV, I want you to know, especially on Jody Iris. I loved watching your analysis and uh, refreshing. Yeah. And the King, you know, at the end, I was the only one arguing for the defense. Yeah, well, you, were, you did great. And, and King, once again, you bring you tell Joey Jackson he missed the best show you've ever done today. So you tell him that. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. And, uh, Carrie, uh, just one last thing. Uh, what do you think about O.J. getting all this time to the case in Nevada? Well, I you know, I just... Happened to be a Christian, and I think you're going to reap what you sow. Uh, I think he he skated on the first one, and uh, he was not humble. And uh, it, it didn't matter if he was humble, because I firmly believe that he was guilty. I believe he had uh, something to do with those homicides, and uh, he got away with it because of the ineptness on LAPD's part. 
period. And I think it just ran downhill when you involved the DA and and mm-hmm. you can there was a lot of culpability in it, but it started with the collection and preservation of that evidence. It was compromised. And you know, you started if you do that in its initial infancy stages, the whole case is blown. That's the bottom line. Whether you got mm-hmm. a bunch of buffoons or it doesn't matter who you have on the jury. As long as they have a brain and they can uh, comprehend and, and perceive what's going on, which they could. Those people were not illiterate. Yeah, they may have been in awe of uh, O.J. Simpson. That doesn't matter. They went through a jury selection process, both sides being that they were worthy to serve as jurors, and they came back with that verdict based on all of the evidence that was uh, presented before them. And unfortunately, I, I think, like you said, there were some mistakes made. The glove was a mistake. You know, uh, that, that was definitely a mistake, but uh, I, 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 don't, I just don't see Marcy Clark, and I, I don't know Marcy Clark. I, I'm not a fan of anybody. I'm just impartial. I just know that I think she was, she was a good attorney. I think they had a good well, I'm team. A, I'm a lawyer, and she was a horrible attorney, so there you go. Okay. Okay. That's, well, what, make, that's what makes horse races. California. Susan, weigh in. Well, you know, I'm listening to both sides here. And, and, and you know, and, and I'm listening to the officer here, and I'm sorry I didn't get your first name, but I can hear in your voice that you're a type of type of person that you know you're not looking at it uh, in, from an emotional point of view or, or forming your own opinion. You're looking at it from the facts that you see before them, and your passion and your belief in that is strongly coming across, and I think that it's very authentic. But the other thing that I'd like to share, though, is that when you're looking at that jury pool, you know, from psychologically point of view, there are certain people that are just more predisposed to believing um, in, or, or what I would say, there's more. There are psychologically some people that just believe that if you've committed a crime, you're guilty of something. They'll put the gavel down very quickly, and there are others that just will say, you know. It's a little gray area. You need to really prove it to me. You need to show me. You need to tell well, me. That's what the law is, by the way. Gun. That's the law. Yeah. Right. Uh, yes, it is. It truly is. But there, what I'm sharing with you is that I know that you're saying that regardless of these people were black, white, pink, or yellow, or if they had their eyes closed, they still would have come to the same verdict. They would have followed those instructions, the jury instructions, and followed the law. And I, I trust what you say, and I believe what you say is true. But I also believe that the jury, number one, you guys know, it's all about the jury. It's how the jury is interpreting the information individually and then as a group. And I, Absolutely. Okay. And I think that this jury pool was more tr- predisposed to giving someone a second chance or to listening to what they have to say and then uh, not finding, you know, the information that the state was putting on is very credible. And those are the type of people that have a higher level of suspicion, lack of trust, maybe towards the police department. I don't know what it is, but that's why they came up with the verdict that they did. And I think it was a cluster of things. It wasn't just one. I think there were numerous things that helped them to come to that verdict. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Also and uh... all the jury consultants. <laughs> It's not a perfect science. The, uh, you know, some... Go ahead. The uh, Go ahead, future James. cases, um, like Zimmerman, how did you feel about that, Mr. Kerry Anderson? Well, um, 
I don't. I, I believe that now you talk about being out lawyered. I think uh, Mr. Zimmerman's uh, lawyers were awesome, and I think the people that put on the uh, the case were terrible. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yes. I, I really, I really saw a significant difference in uh, the lawyers and their abilities. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I knew the way that it was going that that jury, and I don't even know the ethnic makeup of the jury. I just know based on the limited uh, information mm-hmm. that I had, and I, I followed it quite, uh, quite well. That it, it was gonna—I knew it was gonna get off. Uh, I believe that he was. Well, yeah. He was not going to get off that easy. I'm going to tell you guys, I know stuff from the inside, too, that, that, you know, I was there in that courtroom every single day. And I can't tell you how I know the information, but I know some information that came in. And, and let me tell you, it was not a slam dunk for the defense. And, I, you know, I've had lunch with Don West because he wanted to understand a little bit more about the work that I do so that he can use me in some future trials. But the bottom line, but the... But the bottom line is that, the, that, that it was not a slam dunk. We had one, especially the Hispanic black individual, she was wavering. You could see it in the courtroom. She became very emotional when she was looking at those photos. She had eight children already. You know, she was young and impressionable, and she was wavering. And I'm telling you, I said, will you get behind closed doors? She's going to be your holdout. She's now breaking down. And she's starting to, she's, what she's doing is she's kind of projecting, you know, she's a mother. And she's looking at, at uh, Zimmerman's parents. How can I let this person go? And she was the one that was holding out over and over again. And it, I'm telling you, it just was not as easy slam dunk as everybody said. Oh, yeah, the defense was going to win it no matter what. Yes, if you were to follow the law, absolutely you would have found Zimmerman not, not guilty. I, you know, I would have found him not guilty. But at the same time that it was, every single juror was not on the same half as you think that they were it took a lot and what happens is the jurors tend to compromise you know they'll yeah. get to a certain point they get worn down and then one's going to buckle and i call those those sway jurors and i think that you take one strong person who i knew who it was in that and it was the juror was able to connect with her in such a way that was able to kind of walk through the steps of the evidence and then she finally compromised and that's where we came up with a not guilty verdict yeah yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Dwayne Cates out of Phoenix. Thank you, Mr. Richard Herbert out of New York, uh, Vegas. Uh, thank you, uh, former Sergeant Kerry uh, uh, Anderson. Anderson. Thank you, Susan Constantine, body language expert. What is your website again, sir? SusanConstantine.com. Check that out. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on Thank a special you. night. And, uh, Thank you so much. Thanks, an amazing Jordan. show. With okay, King. Yep. Thank you, Jordan. I apologize for not being able to come on. It, it, seemed, it seemed very interesting uh, to listen to just the 10, 15 minutes that I did, and hopefully we can do this again. Absolutely. Definitely. No problem. And, and uh, Susan, are you still there? Susan is off the line. Okay. Uh, let's hear, uh, OJ with, uh, Johnny Cochran, uh, back from 95. Take care, everybody. We'll speak to you next time. Thanks, Jordan. Okay, Jordan. Thank you. Now, live from Los Angeles, here's Larry King. 
Johnny Cochran is our special guest for the full hour tonight. We'll be opening up the phone lines as well. And at the end of the program, Johnny will be joined by Walter Watson Calhoun, the juror who never got to be a juror, but he was an alternate to the end. And we'll find out how he would have voted and also get the first time ever on television between a lawyer in this case and the alternate juror. Thank you for coming, Johnny. My pleasure being here, Larry. Um, I, I must start from the beginning by saying that Robert Shapiro will be a guest on this program tomorrow night for the full hour live, and I spoke to Bob today, and he wants something cleared up, and then we'll get your reaction. And you don't know what I'm going to tell you, but this, that he was dis I wrote the notes down. He was distressed about the reaction to his statements with Barbara Walters the other day. Yes, he disagreed with the race issue, and he was upset about that and the comparison to the Holocaust. But he wants you to know that he agreed with 95% of the defense. He thinks that you did a terrific job, and the defense team was right on top of things. He was very happy with the result. He thinks it's absurd that people would think that he didn't think O.J. Simpson was not guilty. He thinks O.J. Simpson did not commit this crime, but that you didn't need the Furman, the race issue, the Holocaust, and that whole thing. And he wanted you to understand that. And he couldn't reach you today to tell you. So I'm telling you, and he'll be here tomorrow night. Comment. I appreciate that very much from Robert. Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of Bob Shapiro. I said yesterday, I was troubled by those remarks. And the only thing I'd respond, and I don't want to escalate this at all, that I enjoyed working with him uh, during this thing. I thought that uh, he showed a lot of character when he steps aside, and, and I became the lead counsel in the matter. Uh, the one problem that I would like for him to be aware of and think about tomorrow night is that with regard to Mark Furman, Bob Spiro had, had started talking about Furman planting the glove long before I ever came on the case. And in fact, we never played any race card. What we did was pursue the credibility card, if you can call it that. Because I think the race card trivializes the whole issue of race in America. And then what really happened was the prosecution brought forward Mark Furman. They're the ones who knew he had these genocidal attitudes, but yet they put him up there making him like a choir boy. All we did was impeach him when he said he hadn't used the N-word in 10 years and other things. Can you understand why Bob might have been offended to the Holocaust reference? I mean, that was the killing of 6 million Jews, 11 million people. I would never, ever trivialize that. And all I was trying to say was to show that totalitarianism, whether 1937 or now, uh, is unacceptable. You cannot, and we should never have that. And so the African-Americans were Furman who certainly is not a politician or whatever, but is a police officer who, who talks about bombing and burning African-Americans and was just an oblique reference. Uh, I've been to Israel twice. I've been to Yad Vashem, so I'm very, very concerned about that. And so if at all that caused any um, misery or any concern, I apologize for that, but that was not the intent Were at you all. surprised that Bob went public like that? I was, because this was like uh, our greatest day. We were immensely happy, all of us, and so we were very, very surprised to hear that. But I'm glad uh, that he's made this statement. And, and is he right that, that you were in 95% agreement? Oh, yeah, I think... I think he and you? I think almost all the time we'd sit there and talk, and that's why I was a little bit surprised by it. Okay. And, and we get along, and, and uh, we understood from the beginning that this case was about O.J. Simpson, and the one thing that he probably should do is also call O.J. Simpson. He, he was uh, rather displeased with, with those comments. O.J. was displeased. Yes, he should talk to the client also. Yeah, I guess the client would. <laughs> we'll, we'll ask Bobby about that tomorrow, and I'm sure he will, because he has a great deal of affection for O.J., and as he, he reiterated to me today, he's convinced O.J. is not guilty of this crime. Could you have won this without the race? Suppose there's no Furman, oh, I no racial so. issue, no Van Adder. Do you win? Uh, Van Adder, a little different than Furman. Uh, Van Adder was the lead detective, 
and we felt that we demonstrated that there were questions regarding his credibility, and we thought that was important. Furman, and, and listening to what I've heard about our jurors thus far, uh, this clearly was not a decision based, made upon race. In fact, I argued that this was a case where there was reasonable doubt based upon the evidence. And, and I applaud this jury, Larry. They are the greatest jury in the history of American jurisprudence. We told oh, they're them... They're their reps today. No, and, and it's totally unfair. They were told that this case would be over by April of 1995. Here they are, and it's, it's October when they're finally released. They listened to all the evidence, and they did deliberate. You see, you don't have to find all the reasonable doubts in the case. Once you find reasonable doubt, that's all that's necessary. And so I think Americans should be standing up because this jury stood up for the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. One juror said today the key turn in the events of this trial wasn't race or anything. It was the glove didn't fit. Well, we said that. And was that, the, that was the downturn for the rest. Do you, are you surprised at that comment, that that was the key turn? No, I'm not. We always felt that was the defining moment in the trial. And it came on the heels of all the DNA testimony, all this complex scientific evidence. And then the most graphic thing you could have was when they, they set the stage that the killer wore these gloves. These are the killer's gloves. And they asked O.G. Simpson to try the gloves on, and the gloves didn't fit. And I thought that was a defining moment in the trial. Johnny, it's reported late today that there was some concern about O.J. going back to his house. Uh, about the possible safety. Were you one of those concerned? Oh, absolutely. I was. You didn't want him to go? It. No, I would not. That was not my first choice. I'm, I've been out here, and I understand the safety and security concerns, and, and I worried about that. But he wanted to spend his first night of freedom in his own bed, and I'm happy to say he was able to do that, and it worked out well. And he saw his kids today, right? Yeah, his kids now. How did they set that up with the press not getting a chance to see pictures of it? Well, I think they worked it out, and I was real, real happy that it worked out so well. And, and, that, and my hat goes off and I applaud the Brown family also. This because. is the first class. They're a first class family. Uh, they lost a daughter, and, and we all share their pain in that regard. And they took care of these children. They stepped up in the breach and they did that. When it came time for this father, who has been acquitted, to see these children, they facilitated that. What do you say to Fred Goldman, who, as you know, really took off on you? You know, I said that it's not personal, and, and I'm sorry that, it, that he made it personal, but I understand also my heart goes out to him. He lost a son, and that's unimaginable. Nothing There's nothing child. worse than losing a child. And my heart goes out to him. I respect their family. I respect the fact they came there every day. They were vigilant in trying to see justice as they saw it done. And so I have the greatest respect for him and his wife and his daughter. I, I really do. Uh, I, I saluted them in the beginning of my argument, and I meant that. Uh, that was no acting. A lawyer doesn't have to believe his client did or didn't do something, correct? The jury has to, the prosecution has to prove it, and your role is to see that he gets the complete fair trial and the best defense you can give him, right? That's basically true. You would, would not suborn perjury. You wouldn't put perjured testimony you on. You can't allow anyone to lie. That's right. Are you positive? If you're positive he didn't do it, then two things are factual. There's a killer loose, and the police were more than incompetent. Well, I think that unfortunately that's what we showed two in this case. grave things here. I think, that they're, they're, I think basically two. Let's take the last one first. In this case, the citizens of Los Angeles deserve better. Uh, I live in this community. I love Los Angeles. I want our police department to be the very best that it can be. We deserve better in, in these criminal investigations. You saw in my opening statement from the very beginning, we said there would be compromise, contamination, uh, corruption of this evidence. And we demonstrated that graphically the lead detective, and the mistakes they made, and the fact they were untruthful in a number of particulars, is not acceptable. The coroner's office, uh, the, the coroner in this case, uh, made some 60 mistakes, all of which things are not acceptable. The other part, though, 
is we do believe they're a killer or killers loose on this case because they rushed to judgment, Larry. O.J. Simpson was handcuffed within 30 seconds of arriving back here from Chicago on June 13th. They never looked at anyone else. Well, then shouldn't people in Brentwood be frightened? Well, I don't want to um, cause any hysteria or cause people to be panicked, but I think somebody should be looking for whom we believe are the real killers in this case. Do you believe the police are investigating? Absolutely not. In fact, yesterday, Bill Garcetti and the chief of police said, we think we had the right man, we're doing nothing else. And I, don't, I think that kind of stubbornness is, is inappropriate. And they well, honest, they what do you think of the lawyers. prosecution in this case? Uh, they were excellent lawyers. I think they did the best they could with everything they had. Both Marsha Clark and Chris Darden did fine jobs. You were a prosecutor. I was. Were there times, do, do, do you do this? I know we do this in other areas of life. The good coach thinks about what the other coach is thinking about. Are there times you just said, I'd have done this differently? Yes, there were times we did that. I mean, we would not have engaged. I would never have asked him to try on those gloves uh, without knowing whether or not they fit. Uh, you don't ask questions. Never be surprised in a courtroom. No, that was, uh, as I said, that was a defining moment in the case. There were several other things they couldn't handle. They, they, they had Furman. They knew about Furman, and they should have called him. But they did that, and I think that was another thing. But by and large, they did a good job. I thought Marsha Clark, in, in her final closing, in those final minutes, was an effective advocate. I thought Chris Darden did a real good job when he stood up and argued to the jury. The problem was, we felt there was never any motive, that there was no trigger, there was no mechanism, that you didn't have the escalation of lethality that led from uh, um, a case in 1989 uh, of abuse, which O.J. Which Simpson is not proud of, but he paid his debt, to 1994. Are you a little surprised that the jury gave little credence to spousal abuse? Yes, Something I you even admitted that your client has to be ashamed of. Yes, we absolutely did, but we didn't think there was the connection. Uh, they talked all the time about a burning fuse. Well, the fuse kept going out. I mean, uh, O.J. Simpson was traveling all around the country. O.J. Simpson had another girlfriend. He was living a life, and perhaps the most persuasive thing, again, was a videotape. We played for the jury the June 12th videotape, where you saw O.J. Simpson at 6, 6.30 on the evening of June 12th, and you saw him. He, kissed, he was kissing the Brown family. He was shaking hands with Lou Brown. He picked his son up. He didn't look like a man who was dour and bitter and raging. Johnny, when the jury came back so quick and the only evidence they wanted to see was the limo driver, were you worried? You were in San Francisco. I was. I, I was initially troubled, but, you know, my long experience tells me that you can't predict why a, jury want, a juror wants to hear something. And it turns out, I, I, I heard one of the jurors today who said that all they wanted to know about Alan Park was whether or not the lights in the limo were, were on when he first came up. So it's interesting, but I tell you, Larry, a, a secret. The thing that made me feel very confident in this jury and the fact that it was going to be a not guilty was this fact. At 2.20, the jurors asked for the verdict forms. These verdict forms, which you'd help prepare, were very involved. Regarding Nicole Brown Simpson, there were two verdict forms, guilty, not guilty, first and second degree murder. Regarding uh, Ron Goldman, the same thing. Then there was a question of whether or not a, a deadly weapon was used by each of the people, uh, uh, by, by the perpetrators. Then finally, there was this, this very involved, convoluted paragraph to determine whether or not this was a special circumstance case. Yeah. Now, they returned these verdict forms signed at 228. How could you take all those votes and do that in eight minutes? So to me, having tried a lot of these cases, that was a telltale sign. This was a deliberative jury, and I knew after nine months, they wouldn't rush through that part of it. We'll be back with more of Johnny Cochran and your phone calls. Tomorrow night, Bob Shapiro and Bob Kardashian, OJ's oldest friend in all of this, will be with us on Friday. We'll be right back. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, 
You must acquit. In plain English, the glove didn't fit. Larry King live with Johnny Cochran, Jr., lead defense attorney for O.J. Simpson. Some more questions and a lot of your phone calls. Tomorrow night, Robert Shapiro is here live. Client take the stand. F. Lee Bailey on this program, soon after he came on the case, said, normally you don't take the stand, but in this case, you almost have to because he's larger than life, he's too big, the public is going to want to hear his side of the story. And I think pretty much that was our thought, uh, certainly early on. O.J. Simpson always, until the very end, wanted to take a stand. He wanted to tell a story. The problem was, and this is the difficult problem, it wasn't just getting on the stand and saying, I didn't kill these two people. It was all the domestic violence or domestic discord evidence. They you can bring up anything in this They can life? bring up everything. And we felt that toward the end of the trial, when the jury was real tired, they'd go back 18 years to everything, every argument they ever had. We felt that the judge would allow that in. The prosecutors were somewhat desperate, we felt, and they would do anything at that point to try and shake him, to rattle him or whatever. And we felt that we had done a pretty good job on the evidence, and it really wasn't necessary. Plus that, the jurors wanted to go home. And so although we wanted very much for him to be able to deny this, it would have prolonged it. It would have taken a minimum of two weeks, Larry. So we opted not to, and it was hard. We do have a special call on the line. Carmelita Simpson-Durio is with us, the sister of O.J. Simpson. Are you there, Carmelita? Uh, yes, I am. And I understand she wants to say something or ask something or whatever to Johnny. Go. Yes, to my sweetheart. Johnny, <laughs> we love you. You did an excellent job, and we're very, very proud of you. And you could tell your wife, this is the one time I'm speechless. <laughs> I love you. I love the family. I want to take a minute and say something, though. This is probably the greatest family that anyone could ever have. I mean, one thing we found out about O.J. Simpson, he has this remarkable family, these sisters, this mother, the, the children. They rallied around him. They never wavered. Their belief in God was just great. And it carried us all the way through the dark days. We always knew there would be a brighter tomorrow. So I love you all. Carmelita, are you a little surprised at all the flack that Johnny's been getting? Yes, I am. I mean, he doesn't deserve this. Well, I, I mean, uh, Are you surprised I, that America is so divided on this decision? Yes, I am. You know, and I don't understand it. Uh, on a personal note, what, what, you were there when O.J. met his kids today. Well, I don't want to answer that. I just want to know how, what that was like. What were the children like? I mean, everyone's interested. That's, that's human interest, Carmelita. Cool. Well, Be a no, reporter, but, Carmelita. I mean, no, but I think that's something O.J. needs to tell you. I mean, I don't want to get in on his story. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Thank you, Carmelita. Daddy, I just wanted you to know that we love you. You're a sweetheart, baby. Thank you very, very much. I very much appreciate that. Thank you. I love everybody. Okay. Good. Uh... Aren't you going to have a problem paying his bills? No, I think he'll be able to do it. I mean, All these stories about a pay-per-view thing? or What, what, what now? For well, I know he has had a lot of offers in that regard. I don't know what, the, what he's done on that. I know there's always talk about another book. That's not your baby. No, it's right? not my bailiwick. No, not at all. You're out of this now, right? No, I, I'm his lawyer on the civil cases at this point. Oh, you so, will be. At this point. Well, I don't know if I'm going, going all the way through, through apparently. There are three civil suits at this point, and I'm still counsel of record on that and protecting his interests. Whether or not I'll stay all the way to the end on those. Uh, I've said to the plaintiffs that they have a right to bring a lawsuit, but they ought to think about this verdict and they ought to listen to what these jurors have had to say so that uh, if there's not a chance of their prevailing, they ought to consider that now. Is OJ broke? No, I don't think he's broke. Uh, I think he's done, uh, Skip Taft, his business lawyer, has done a real marvelous job. OJ did very well for himself and, and uh, 
anyone would spend any amount of money to to save their life. But I think he's I think he's okay. I think he's got to do some work though. He can't stop working. Let me put it that way. How do you react to the charges that you set race relations back? Dominic Dunn very vocal last night in saying that you, you Johnny Cochran, set race relations back in this country. Well, I take exception to that. Let me tell you what. In this country, people don't want to talk about the issues of race, and that's naive. For us to move beyond this point, for us to improve race relations in America, we have to talk about it, Larry. We have to discuss the differences, the things that divide us, the disparity in these polls and why people see things differently, and then we need to try to do something about it. You know, Dr. King said that in America, uh, you promised such and such. Let's hold up a mirror to society. Here's what, you here's what you promised, here's what you delivered, and there's a disparity. All we're saying, and what I've tried to say from the beginning is that, look, we all love America. Let's make it better. And so this case has exacerbated some of the things. They were not of my, not my creating, but we dealt with them. And you have to deal with things head on. It's been said your client was never particularly a black activist. Uh, certainly there were others in the in movement who were more vocal, Arthur Ashe and other athletes. Has he changed in that regard since this trial? He can answer that better than I can, but I'll but say you spoke to him every day. Sitting next to him every day. Uh, and O.J. Simpson was about as... as um, colorless person in society. I mean, he was really had blended well in the society and done very well for himself because he's a very smart man. I think what he saw over the course of the last 16 months has caused him to change. So he understands more about racism. And I think you'll probably see that in his life. I think uh, in the future you'll see an O.J. Simpson, he may not be speaking out uh, in, on a soapbox or whatever, but I think he'll be a lot more sensitive. And I think the other thing is he saw the levels of support that came to him and where that support came from and it made a big difference to him. He's aware of the black support in this country. Absolutely, he really is. Is he going to move? I don't know. I think he's made that final decision. Yeah. I think there's a lot. Of, I think he's going through now, you know, a number of thought processes. And and but you know what? He told me one day. He says, you know, I'm the kind of person I always move forward. I never look back. You are going to be. You went to Washington to the Black Caucus dinner. You got the largest applause of the night over Colin, over the president. You have become a major figure in your race and in race relations in this country, as well as in the field of law. What do you tend to do with that? That's a responsibility. Well, it is. I, I want to be responsible in that connection. What I want to do is to keep fighting for justice. I mean, that's what I want to do. I want to keep doing what I do best, hopefully trying cases. And I do want to speak out where I can to help improve race relations in this country. I want to be the voice that says we can all get along together. We're all in this boat together, and we can do better in this country, especially for younger people coming along. I'm, I focus on the young people the need for an education. Do you see yourself going into politics? Never. No. Absolutely never. What do you think about the possibility of a Colin Powell candidacy? Well, you know, he's a, he's a very, very fine, attractive candidate. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he's going to do at this point, but he certainly shows how far you can go in this country if you get a little hand. And the LAPD, Johnny. Got a black police chief from Philadelphia. It's obviously got problems. They have a lot of problems, and, and I, you know, I spoke to somebody today about the need for us to reconcile the relationship. I've had basically, even though I've sued the police throughout my entire career, I've had a pretty good relationship with the LAPD, and, and I want to make sure that relationship pertains. You know, I try to be very careful, even in my argument, and said, look, when I say these remarks about, let's say, Van Adder and Furman, I distinguish them from, say, 
uh, Detective Lang and Detective Phillips. This is not all police officers. It's in this case some who I thought were different and should be distinguished. Because they were booed walking out of court, weren't they? Uh, I think so. The, the, the police have City's a very, trouble if you very have tough job, and especially the LAPD. But we need the police, and there's no question about it. But they need to improve their act. They cannot continue to bury their head in the sand. After Rodney King, you should have learned something. After this case, hopefully they'll learn something. And some of the prosecutors have said to me, we hope that after this case, we'll get some better support from the police department. What's your next case? Oh, I'm going to be trying uh, part of the murder case involving Snoop Doggy Dog. I've got the, the Reginald Denny, Denny case set for the end of the year. And I represent, along with a lawyer named John Merritt, uh, a number of the victims in the Oklahoma City bombing. Well, Where you do? Yes, yes, I'm going to Oklahoma City. And I'm really? looking for that's a That's a major case. Is that going to be a combined suit? Yes, it's a civil, it's a, it's a major, major civil suit. So we have more than 200 clients. Like class action, then? Yes, who are either killed or, or injured. And what we're saying to the manufacturers is that you should not sell this fertilizer when it's non-detonable. When, when did you get to work on this while you were in the Oh, it's been tough. I, I worked late night weekends. And I went I to Oklahoma one day. Words, oh, yes. well, when that bombing occurred, they called your firm in? Yes, I got involved early on. I went to Oklahoma about two months ago, and I'm going back very shortly because I, this is a very, very, very important Was O.J. always aware of this? Oh, yes. Whenever, whenever I got involved in something else, I always got his clearance. Back with our uh, phone calls for Johnny Cochran. He ain't going away. Tomorrow night, Robert Shapiro. We go to the calls, London, Ontario. Hello. Yes, hello. Good evening, Larry. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask Mr. Cochran, um, I know you just stated that you are trying to improve race relations in the country, but doesn't it bother you But by the way you handled the case that you've really driven a deeper wedge between the blacks and the whites, not only in, in your country, but all over the world, really? Absolutely not. The fact that uh, people are awakened to what is a problem, uh, doesn't uh, in any way take away from the fact there's a problem. We've got to improve. And, and I'd be the first to say, I love America. I love this country. But what we want in America is equality of opportunity for everyone. You don't get that by sitting around silently making, making like nothing exists. And in this case, we didn't introduce race. We did not call Mark Furman. He was called by the prosecution. So you've got to understand that. Those are just phrases thrown around by people. There's a problem. We need to work on it. We need to talk and make things better. It's very hard for the majority community to understand what it is to be black in America, even if you're successful. So it's very hard for people to talk about this and to really understand. Chris Darden take a bad rap from the black community for yes. prosecuting this case? Uh, to the extent, yes. Um, I think Chris Darden is a very fine lawyer, and, and I have said that to him, and will say publicly. It is very important to have prosecutors who are black and, and, and in every walk of life. He is an effective advocate. And he was very, very sensitive, and I think he has a great future in the black community shouldn't be angry at him. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Redondo Beach, California. Hello. Hi, is this Mr. Johnny? It is. Go <laughs> okay, ahead. Okay, good. I'm curious. Are you going to uh, represent uh, O.J. Uh, when his earning power is diminished because of the coming boycott of companies that would uh, allow him to profit from these uh, heinous murders? Mm, absolutely. And first of all, that he's not guilty of the murders, sir, so you understand that. But absolutely. This isn't about money. Uh, after over 13 or 14 months, do you think that uh, I could be compensated for that amount of time? Absolutely not. Did, did you make more money the year preceding? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, this, that question is a very interesting question. I lost money during this trial. This uh, thing is not going to go away, you agree? As he mentioned, boycott of products if O.J. gets involved. Is he going to have a tough time making a living? You know, he's a very resourceful man, and I think there are a lot of things that he can do. As I said, he always moves forward. So I think that you'll be able to see him doing things uh, that 
you know, will compensate him adequately for it. He's going to have to do something public, though, isn't he? Well, I think so. I think, I think he wants to do something public. I think he wants to set the record straight. I think he wants people to be able to hear his side of it. I think he wants to say something to the black community also. He's been so very supportive of it. Colchester, Vermont, hello. Hi, Larry. Hi, Johnny. Hello. Johnny, as, a, as an attorney, you've had to have several dealings in the past with the LAPD. You've said they've, that you've always had a good relationship with them. Do you think this trial would possibly taint your relationship with them and would you find them more uncooperative should you need to deal with them in the future? And how would you handle that? Well, I think they're professionals, and I think they understand uh, the fact that uh, this, as a defense lawyer, I have to go where the evidence leads me. Doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I'm anti-police, which I'm not. All I've said all along is that we have a right to expect and do expect uh, appropriate, competent policing in this city. That's what they say they want, and I think we're going to help them. There are going to be a lot of changes wrought by this case. You're going to see the LAPD, I predict, using videotapes at crime scenes, something we said they should have had all along. We're going to see better trained officers. We're going to see them call in the coroner's office, as the state law requires right away. Were there moments when evidence was introduced, blood evidence and the like, where you doubted your client? Never. Never a moment? Never one moment we doubted him, because everything he ever told us, it always checked out. It did. Take, you talk about all this blood evidence. Uh, you saw my demonstration during the closing argument. If you take all of the alleged blood found on the console, it was less than seven-tenths of a drop of blood. And we'd heard how heinous these offenses are and how there was blood everywhere. Where would, where'd all the blood go? I think the jurors are asking that question. It didn't make sense. How'd the blood appear, disappear, and then reappear? The thing everyone wants to know is, where was he that hour, right? We've heard that question asked many, many times. And you had some conflicting things. He was hitting golf balls. He was sleeping. Do not we know? Really, not really conflicting. Let me tell you what we're saying. I think if you're talking about the period of time between 10 and 11 o'clock, here's some things you can surmise. If and when O.J. Simpson makes a statement, you'll hear from him. From that, that's the you. Best. Yes, that'll be the absolute best. But what, let me just speak generally about this. I think you're going to find that O.J. Simpson was at home. When they return, uh, Larry, when you go and get a hamburger at McDonald's, when you're worried about getting money to tip the sky cap, when you know the, the limousine driver is coming at 10.30, 10.45, you don't just say all of a sudden, gee, I think I'll, I'll change out of my tennis shoes and I'll put on these dress shoes and I'll put on some dress socks and I'll go over and I think I'll kill my wife. It doesn't make any sense at all. You're going to find out that he was, in fact, at home at Rockingham. And you're going to also find out that O.J. Simpson is an avid golfer, that he has a number of golf clubs and things. He was moving his golf clubs, that in fact, the driver, limousine driver, and Cato Kalin, so the, drive, the golf clubs were already down in the driveway. You're going to find out that the, the bag that they're talking about, this little small bag, contained golf balls. Okay, then in speculation, who does he think did it? Well, I think that uh, he'll have to answer that for himself. But what do you think? Well, one of the things that I think is so tough is that we thought we wanted to at least explore the fact that when Faye Resnick moved in with Nicole Brown Simpson on her about June 3rd, uh, and then she had a problem, problem with drugs, which I think she's admitted. And she went into a drug treatment facility and was in one as of June 12th. We wanted to explore that. We wanted to explore, had that ever happened in her life before, where a good friend of hers had been killed in another city in California. We wanted to explore those kinds are of things. Are you saying this is just a trial balloon? Or you, no, absolutely. You, you no, know we, someone no, was killed? No, we, we did a lot of investigation, as you know, in this case. And we want to find out all those kinds of things and find out whether they made any sense in this case. Unfortunately, we were cut off by the judge. And so he said, I don't, you can't explore that. So it was very tough. We don't have to determine who did this, but we wanted to help the police. Did you have a great appeal, you think, had you lost this case? Oh, absolutely. Alan Dershowitz said it was the greatest appellate record he'd had in 32 years of practicing, I think. We'll be right back with uh, Johnny Cochran, more of your phone calls, and then Walter Watson Calhoun will join us, the alternate juror.
First time a juror with a lawyer in this case. Don't go away. We're joined by Walter Watson Calhoun, the 74-year-old alternate juror. He was one of two alternates left, but he heard every minute of this trial that all the jury heard. Toronto, Canada. Hello. Uh, yes, good evening to you both. Um, much has been said um, about the fact that the verdict was based solely on the evidence, and it has been the contention of your defense team that O.J. Simpson's window of opportunity to commit these crimes was nullified by the fact that he overslept, was at home, and was therefore rushed for his limousine ride to the airport. Now, the jury asked for Alan Park's testimony. Who do you believe the shadowy figure to be of O.J.'s height and weight, the one that Alan Park saw running across O.J.'s lawn, who entered his home, who knew the code for his security system, and then who turned on the downstairs lights. Who was that? It's Johnny? Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. In my, in my closing argument, I indicated, I think that was O.J. Simpson, but he wasn't uh, running across any lawn. He was in the walkway of his driveway. It was about 12 to 15 feet from his door. I think O.J. Simpson had been outside when he was bringing the luggage out or had been outside. The evidence is he went outside at one point to the Bronco to get the apparatus from his phone. So, so he overslept and walked out you know, with the stuff? And I never said he overslept. I think that sometime he had nodded out at some point, but he, I don't think he necessarily overslept. I think he was in the shower. I think he was getting ready. See, here's the problem. So he was the figure. Oh, I always thought he was the figure. That was never a question. So people who watched the trial one day get really confused about the facts. The facts are, we, can, we thought that's who it was, but it tied in with the statement to Dr. Batten, if you recall. He'd gone out to get the apparatus from his phone, and we know that O.J. Simpson had his portable phone with him when he went to uh, back east. So, I mean, it's clear. That's, that's, a, that's a very easy question for us. Gary, Indiana, hello. Yes, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Congratulations, Mr. Cochran. What I'd like to say is that one of the most disturbing outcomes of this case is that the district attorney, Mr. Garcetti, not once thank the jurors who sacrificed a lot in the name of justice. What I'd like to know is how do you feel about the district attorney and the police chief not seeking the real killer? Well, I'm very disappointed in them and their conduct. I mean, I think that when you, in this system, the jurors are the bulwark of the system, and thank heaven for the jurors and their regular citizens who came to this task. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln said the highest act of citizenship is jury service, and I believe that they both, the chief and the DA, Oh, a debt of gratitude to, the, to these jurors, and they should apologize, and they should thank them. But you were a prosecutor. If you prosecuted someone vehemently, sure. and you were convinced of their guilt, and the jury disagrees with you, I still think what's going to prompt you, oh, to forget the thanking, but they're not gonna, you're not going to be prompted to go out and investigate the crime. Oh, yes, I would. Yes, you I still would. would. Because the Even if you prosecuted and were lost the prosecution. Absolutely, because it does, the prosecutors, don't, they're not infallible, Larry. They make mistakes. Look at their presentation in this case. So they should open up this whole thing and be out investigating it from the get-go. They should have an open mind and not rush the judgment. That's what this case was about. So if they rush the judgment and they haven't looked at anybody else, the jury said they got the wrong so person. If you, were a, they do if you were back in the prosecution office, this case would be absolutely promo open. uno. By, by not only by the district attorney's office, but I would encourage the LAPD to do it also. Absolutely. We're going to have another first in this trial. Uh, we're going to have one of the jurors, an alternate juror, Walter Watson Calhoun, join us with a member of the defense, Johnny Cochran, Jr., right after this. We're now joined at our studios here in Los Angeles by Walter Watson Calhoun, 74-year-old alternate juror and former L.A. bus driver on your left, and his nephew and lawyer, Mark Perry, on your right. Before we have a comment from Walter Mark, why does your uncle need a lawyer? Well, as you know, Larry, this is a very uh, high-profile case. Um, immediately after uh, the verdict came in, uh, he's been inundated with calls from 
anywhere from book deals to movie deals to talk shows. So uh, my uh, uncle has uh, re requested that I come out from Philadelphia and be with him during this process as his nephew and also as his lawyer. Thanks, Mark, and thanks for joining us, and thanks for also making this uh, possible. You said you, you liked Walter Calhoun. Now, you haven't spoken to him, have you? I have not. just saw him briefly in the hallway there. I love, I love Walter. Why? Uh, Mr. Walter Calhoun. There's, some, there's a strength about him. There's a wisdom about him. And we had a chance to interact because we had so many jury investigations. Whenever he would come in Judge Edo's chambers and we would talk, there's something that he says, such integrity. The judge said to him on one occasion, if there's some problems, can I ask you to bring it to my attention? He just resonated with, with reason and judgment and fairness. Right, let's, hear, let's hear Walter. Yes. How would you have voted? Uh, yes. Uh, and as much as I wasn't one of the 12, I would really not like to say how I would have voted. Were you surprised at their decision? To be in all honesty, I was certainly surprised. Because it was so fast or it was not guilty? No, neither one. Because of the fact that uh, each one of us kept everything to ourselves that was happening in that courtroom. And we didn't discuss it one way or another with, the, with each other. And I just didn't know how they were going. Which direction they were going to take. So then you had to be surprised at how quick they had a verdict. Not really. Then what are you surprised at, Walt? Well, I'm not really surprised at anything, but this that uh, uh, they 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 are well, people that was honest, people that tried their best to be fair, and in their opinion, in their decision. Johnny, what comment would you make that? I'd like. He to. Is, it seems like he's a little surprised that. The quickness, since he says they never spoke to each other. Well, I think they had a lot of integrity in this jury, and, and, and I, I don't doubt that at all. And to Mr. Calhoun and to all the jurors, I'd say on behalf of O.J. Simpson, thank you for giving his life back. Thank you for your willingness to sit there all these months. Thank you for what you did for justice in America. Because I have said that this, this jury understood the Constitution. They understood the Bill of Rights. They followed the law. They determined the facts. They did the right thing. And who could ask for more? What to you, Walter, was the key, if there was a key moment in this long time in this trial and your sequestration and it had to be so tough, but in the courtroom, mm -hmm. was there to you a key moment? Well, to me, the key moment was that time element of that they allotted Mr. Simpson to change his clothes, get rid of a weapon, clean himself up, what all of those things a murder would have to do, it was impossible for him to do it in five minutes. So therefore, that was more key to you than Mark Furman or the race issue or the police uh, planting evidence or not planting evidence, etc. That was more important to you. It certainly was. Does that surprise you, John? No. In fact, one of the things we let out in our, our closing argument, contrary to what you've heard so much about, was the timeline. 
Marsha Clark stood up and told the jurors it would only take five minutes to do all those things. I said, that's preposterous. How could you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And if it doesn't fit, you must acquit because doesn't, that doesn't fit into anything that's logical or reasonable. So I'm real happy to hear that. You never got to be in the final room, Walter. Are you glad you did this or not glad? I'm, I'm happy that I was, was chosen and I'm also happy that I was able by strength from God to endure to the end. You were the oldest member of that panel, were you not? Yes, sir. What's it like to be home? Oh, I'm just thrilled to death, but <laughs> it's hard for me to make, make the adjustment. <laughs> we'll be back with our remaining moments with Walter Watson Calhoun, his lawyer and nephew Mark Perry, and Johnny Cochran, Jr. For the benefit of our radio listeners, we'll be extending this program. If you leave us, uh, please understand that we will be going a little over because with us on the phone now is O.J. Simpson. Uh, how are you? I'm doing fine. And uh, one, I want to thank you, um, a lot, you know, a lot because so many of my friends have told me that you've been fair in uh, in hosting your show and bringing uh, the points of view from both sides. I want to thank Mr. Calhoun for taking the time out of his life. Uh, I know it had to be tough for him and. Most of all, I want to thank that man, Mr. Johnny Cochran, for believing from the beginning, listening, and putting his heart and soul on the line uh, to, to send me home and spend time that I'm spending right now with my kids. As I say all of this, you know, I, I've been watching your show, and I, and, and I, I don't really have a lot to say now. And, uh, and pretty soon I'll have, all, uh, I'll have enough to say to everybody and hopefully answer everyone's questions. But... Uh, one of your callers, a lady called a minute ago, and she asked a question about a shadowy figure running down the hall. I mean, running down the driveway and across the lawn, yeah. and into the front door. Let me say that was to me. That's one of the problems. One of the problems I have in the day with with people who followed this trial, they have not listened to the evidence. Marsha Clark said a person ran across the driveway. Marsha Clark has said that all along. That is not what Allen Park said. Allen Park said 15 feet roughly from my front door, which it was me walking out of my front door, dropping my bags and going back in. He marked it. They put a display up, put an X. She asked him, put an X where you saw this person. 15 feet, never on the driveway, never coming down the driveway, never crossing the uh, driveway. That is the testimony. I mean, throughout this case, it's been this misrepresentation time and time again. People come home from work and they hear the pundits uh, elaborating on these misrepresentations. Listen to the, what the witness says. Listen to what their testimony is and not what Marsha Clark told you. So that not was, what, so that not was, what Darden told so, you. And that so, has been the big problem. Fortunately for me, the jury listened to what the witnesses said and not Marsha Clark's or Darden's or anyone else's rendition of what they said. So, Miss, I, I didn't get your name. There was no shadowy figure coming down the driveway and going across the uh, uh, driveway. That's what Marsha Clark told you. That's not what Alan Park told you. O.J., uh, uh, how would, uh, you, <laughs> would you describe yourself as relieved, angry, what? A, a little bit of everything. I think my, my, my basic anger, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I leave, my basic anger is these misconceptions. My basic anger is people I've heard said I followed the case. I've heard experts say... This was the testimony today, and that wasn't the testimony today. There were so many times I went back to my cell and I watched TV. I go to my uh, attorney room. I talk to uh, my attorneys and some witnesses, and we say, were these experts 
looking at the same or hearing or they're in the same courtroom that we were in today? Did they hear the testimony today? Because what they were reporting on the news, what they were reporting on these various shows was not what the witnesses were saying. And once again, that lady will call in. <laughs> Look at the testimony. Marsha Clark told you that. Alan Park did not tell you that. A couple of quick things. Uh, I'll let no, you I got to go. Right, so can you <laughs> so just I really got to go. How was, what was it like with the Thank kids you. today? What was it, it like with the kids? It's been great. It's been great. Thank you. And soon, and I appreciate what, how fair you've been. Thank you. And Thank be, you. God will bless you, be, OJ. I guess from that, thanks, OJ, he will be making a statement. I gather he's going to come forward in some forum I think he will be. soon. His voice sounded very strong. Oh, yes, he has resolved. Nobody, none of the lawyers even, knew the facts as well as OJ Simpson, as you just could tell. He knew the facts chapter and verse. He thought it was his life, and he knew those facts. He made sure we knew those facts. It so, doesn't sound too yeah, crazy about Marsha. Oh, I think he I think he respects her, but he, he, he had a, he would always tell me how he felt they would twist the facts. And uh he was he's very right about that. Uh there was a mark. This person was I said, was only seen within ten to fifteen feet of the door going in. And he knows those facts. Walter, what did you make of that phone call? Uh Well the the evidence was that it was Mr. Simpson that was going across that lawn and uh... that's what he just said yes and i heard the facts in the courtroom uh... uh walter would you conclude at the end of this because we've run a little over that uh... Mm -hmm. that jury made a right decision i know you said earlier you didn't want to comment but i'll try again me personally concerning this whole thing. I don't think anyone knows who the killer is. And let's pray to God that the right decision was made. And since I wasn't a part of making that decision, I'll leave it at what I've just said. Thank you, Walter. And thank you, Mark, for making Walter's appearance possible. We thank O.J. for calling in. Uh, he'll obviously be choosing some forum in which to tell it would seem that He's the kind of person who's going to want to come forward and tell his side. It must have been awfully hard for him not to get up. Yes, it was. Very hard, as you could tell. He wanted to tell and wanted to talk. It's very hard to remain silent. I asked these jurors, you ever been accused of anything falsely? You have to sit there and listen and take it and never get a chance to tell your side and rely upon others to bring out the truth. It's very hard. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure. Tomorrow night, Robert Shapiro joins us. And then on Friday night, Bob Kardashian, O.J.'s oldest friend out here, and a loyal supporter through this whole concept. We also have to have major figures in the prosecution appearing on this program, as well as, you know, their invitations extended daily. Thanks for joining us. Good night.